Hello and welcome to the Glasscast. My name is Drew McCusker. My pronouns are he, him. And this is a podcast that is made by the Glass Network, Scotland's organisation for LGBT plus legal professionals. Now, you don't have to be a legal professional to listen to this podcast. Maybe if you're a legal professional, you might say I'm wrong in certain things, but that's great. If you're not a legal professional, I'm right in everything. We've got a really interesting interview today with a member of the Glass Network committee called Alan Ingalls. But before that, I'm really excited to have as a guest um, with me this morning. Who are you, my guest? Uh, my name is Roddy Delop, QC. I'm the Dean of the Faculty of Advocates, the, uh, the Scottish Bar. Okay, so what is the Faculty of Advocates? So the Faculty of Advocates has been established since 1532. It's the home for uh, all advocates in Scotland. The, the Scottish version of a barrister is an advocate. Mm-hmm. Um, so we are the people that still wear wigs and gowns on restricted occasions now. Mm-hmm. Um, we have rights of audience in, in all the courts in Scotland. And along with uh, solicitor advocates who have extended rights, we plead the cases in the, the higher courts, so the High Court of Justiciary, Court of Session and the United Kingdom Supreme Court. I mean, you say you're the only ones who wear wigs and gowns, but you are talking on an LGBT plus podcast and you know we love a drag queen. <laughs> We've had a couple of drag queens on before, so you can't claim it's just your thing, Roddy. We, we, we can't, but I'm not sure that the, the horsehair wigs that we wear are um, uh, quite stylish <laughs> enough, but um, we, we, we do have them. Uh, no, there's a whole thing there. There's a whole thing there. We now have an idea of what Pride could be like next, next year. Um, though I think the black and white is maybe just a bit too basic. Um, well, why did you become an advocate, if I can ask? Uh, rather boringly, it's something I'd always wanted to do since mm-hmm. pretty uh, pretty early on in life. Uh, I mean, I, I come from a, a family of lawyers. Grandfather was um, Jimmy Boyle's solicitor. My, my father was at the bar, um, and I decided pretty early on I wanted, wanted to do it. And uh, if you're a lawyer who enjoys litigation, then in, in my opinion, it's the best place to be. You get involved in the most interesting cases. I remember when I started, when I did my litigation traineeship, I realized that to be a litigator meant that you were constantly dealing in disputes and you're always trying to meet in the middle. And it wouldn't be maybe something like a commercial lawyer, which is to do with how do we connect these contracts? How do we connect these companies? But litigation has that dispute element at the center of it. Like, how do you find that as a, as a job thinking I'm always dealing with arguments never with you know progressions or or, or development developing ideas so how do you how do you find that yeah I mean that that is the core of it of course we are very much a distressed purchase no one no one uh, engages counsel unless they absolutely have to so there, there is a conflict mm-hmm. um, but part of our job significant part of our job is to resolve that conflict and um, if you think about the statistics um, the vast majority of civil cases, um, which is primarily my area of practice, um, resolve. And they resolve by sometimes by mediation, sometimes by arbitration, um, very often simply by negotiation. Um, council meeting uh, in the reading room, council meeting in, the, in Parliament Hall, uh, discussing the case and, and finding a solution that, that works for everyone. Uh, I mean, classically, they would, some would say a compromise is an agreement with which no one is happy. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the stark reality of it is, most people, and I, I will always tell my clients, most people are better off out of court than in court. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's very much part of our job as counsel to do what's in our client's best interest. And if, if the best interests are served by settling a case, uh, by discussion, by negotiation, by compromise, then that's what we'll do. So yes, it starts with conflict, but a major part of our job is resolving that conflict. And only if that conflict cannot be resolved, um, do you have to get engaged in the in the, the true litigious process of, of actually being in court, uh, the cross-examination, et cetera? 
who actually makes up the sort of faculty? Who is in the courtroom? What are the sort of statistics or the demographics of it? Um, in terms of how many members of faculty, or yeah, faculty. so I mean, the, the, yeah. So the Scottish bar is is tiny compared to to other parts of the United Kingdom. We have about four hundred and fifty practicing members, um, which, uh, if you compare that to the bar of England and Wales, bar of England and Wales is is fifteen thousand. Um, so if you were to extrapolate that in terms of population size, we're about a third of the the number one would expect. Mm-hmm. So it's a small bar. It's um, in many ways a specialised bar. Um, uh, and primarily we're involved in the court of session and the high court of justiciary, but also members will plead in, in tribunals uh, and in the, the sheriff courts. So as a male, female, what's the divide there with like a young old male, female from, you know, different backgrounds, be it ethnicity or social, social class? And how is that? How does that make up? Yeah, so the, the faculty has a, a bit of an image of being an, um, a, an old boys club. Um, I, I reject that image. Um, I, I mean, it, it is true. There is a preponderance of, of, uh, of, of white males. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that is changing. The demographics are changing. But a third of the, um, the makeup of, um, of faculty is, is female. Mm-hmm. Um, we are roughly um, uh, well represented in terms of ethnicity. Um, in terms of percentage-wise, although um, we are forever trying to um, include uh, or increase diversity, and we've recently um, got a, a very good link up with SEMLA, Scottish Ethnic Minority Lawyers Association, um, with whom we launched the uh, the new Lord Hope Scholarship, mm. um, which is a, a fund that's um, is funded entirely by um, voluntary contributions from members of faculty, designed to enable. Um, people from a more diverse background to be able to afford the devilling period, which is the, the nine-month unpaid period that everyone struggles to get through mm-hmm. um, and designed to help them financially to, to do that. And it is, is weighted in favour of, of diversity. Um, in terms of um, social, socioeconomic background, I mean, again, I think the, the recent survey showed that um, over one half of our membership were um, had state school education, uh, at least of uh, for for part or all of their um, their education mm-hmm. so again it's the, the the image that this is all public school boys is is not correct mm-hmm. but again we're aiming to to address um, such historical uh, imbalances as there were mm-hmm. and the Lord Hope Scholarship Fund is very much part of that uh, and it and it is working each year we see more and more state school educated people coming forward qualifying and indeed flourishing. One of the things you mentioned earlier was the wigs and gowns which I made a, a joke a joke about but the point of having a wig and a gown is to, and obviously you know bet, better than I here, is to really anonymize a person's identity and to make sure that actually they are seen as an advocate and somebody who's representing a case and an argument and is to take away, you know, um, any kind of identifying features. Is that, is that a fair kind of summary of, of the purpose of it? Both of I, I mean, I've, I've heard the anonymity argument used in favor of wigs and gowns particularly for, for criminal practitioners. But I, I don't think that's a, that's a major part of it. Part of it is, is simply just rooted in history. Mm-hmm. Um, part of it is, it is our identifier. It's, it's, the, it's the badge. It's, the, the, it's what sets the um, council apart in a, in a, a sort of visual way mm-hmm. from the, the other um, aspects of the legal profession, whether it be the, the law society, which is the main aspect, or the commercial attorneys. Mm-hmm. And for that reason, we like the wig and gown because it is that identifier. Mm-hmm. But 
I, I, don't, I would not like to think that the, we are anonymizing or, or stripping people's personalities out of this. That, that's certainly not the case for anyone that litigates. Personality is, is a very, very much an important part of what we do. And everyone knows that one opponent will be a completely different kettle of fish from, a different, from another one. I suppose one of the things I think about when I see uh, advocates is that you have somebody in a white wig and they'll have them uh, dressed in black. And usually, I guess, for an LGBT plus point of view, um, LGBT plus is an identity which is quite invisible. So it's difficult for people to kind of see who is LGBT plus identifying or self-identifying. And when I look at the faculty, I think it's difficult to see people who are openly queer as opposed to, as opposed to seeing, oh, there's, I can see uh, like a female um, demographic. I can see, uh, you know, people of colour, so people from um, different ethnic minorities. And I suppose it's difficult then to try and see everything else. And of course, lots of invisible identities as well, religion, disabilities to an extent. But from an LGBT plus point of view, because there's so much litigation, especially recently, about what uh, LGBT plus people are going through, I think there is a an anxiety or a hesitation for queer people to want to come to a courtroom to, um, to have what is perceived to be somebody who is not LGBT plus arguing their case in front of a bench that is not LGBT plus self-identifying either. Whereas, you know, it is, as you say, this idea of pale male stale, it is a predominantly white, predominantly male profession, both the faculty and uh, the judiciary. Do you think that that puts LGBT plus people off on coming forward with cases or approaching the bar as a, as a profession? I, I would hope that that's not the case. And I've seen no evidence that that is the case. Um, we have, Historically, faculty has always been a very welcoming place for gay men and women. We've had many openly gay practitioners for many years, some of whom have gone onto the bench. Uh, I've never seen any indication of there being an unwelcoming situation. We have openly gay members, for example, on faculty council, which is the, um, if, if one had an equivalent to the sort of board of directors for the faculty of advocates, then we have that. I'm not suggesting that there's no room for improvement. There always is room for improvement. I've certainly not seen any indication that people ought to be deterred from coming forward to the Scottish Bar. And by that, I mean either to be customers of the Scottish Bar or, or to join the Scottish Bar. Um, and as I say, historically, and I think that the numbers bear this out, there is a there is a higher proportion of certainly gay and bisexual members of faculty than there is in the, in the population as a generality, just looking at, at that very basic statistic, which I think is, is something we can be proud of. And what about for people who are trans and non-binary? Do you feel that's the same thing for, for them? Are there customers or people pursuing a career? Yeah, I mean, we have no advocate identifying as trans, um, so far as I'm aware. And that is in part down to this, the small size of the bar. You've only got 450 people. I've uh, have, you know, in previous discussions with the Glass Network, indicated that if there's a way of finding out if trans people are being deterred from coming to the bar. I want to know about that and I'd want to address their concerns mm -hmm. because frankly, for, for me, the only thing I care about in terms of being a member of faculty is, is excellence. If you, you can demonstrate excellence in the law, then I want you here. And I, do, I don't care what your ethnicity is, what your orientation is. For me, the only, the only guiding characteristic that I need is, is excellence. Mm. I get that. I think I get that. And, we, and, I, and I will also say that we've had a, we had a really productive meeting uh, about two months ago with yourself, Kirsty Hood QC, 
head of the Quality Diversity Committee, and um, our key folks, uh, Glass Committee member. And it, and we're th- and we've wanted to have something fun to do for Pride, but I say this year, um, there's not much fun happening for Pride anywhere. So uh, this is this is our Pride celebration, and I suppose an external start of uh, of the relationship between the faculty and the Glass Network. I think there are more things that Glass can do to ensure that LGBT plus professionals feel comfortable to come out. And likewise, the more things that the faculty can do for LGBT plus members to feel able to be authentically themselves, be openly themselves, and as you say, be those excellent um, individuals who do these cases. And what would your advice be to um, either faculty members or to people who want to join the faculty who identify as LGBT plus? It, well, if they were concerned for, for any reason about about coming to the bar, or they, even if they just wanted to chat about coming to the bar, then the first point of call would be the clerk of faculty, or or even you know speak to myself or any of the office bearers, or indeed any member of faculty, because it is a very collegiate body. Mm-hmm. Um, we have we've got mentoring um, a, a process in place for anyone experiencing any concerns about bullying, whether it be from an instructing solicitor or a more senior member of faculty or the judiciary. If there are any concerns about that, then we've got in process, firstly, talk to spot so it can be reported anonymously. Secondly, we've put in a, a mentoring process whereby there are people are identified as supporters who've been given training as to how to deal with this. You can go and speak to them and then they can, they can chat and decide whether or not there's a, objectively speaking, a problem that needs to be addressed. And if there is, then how that is addressed usually by speaking by putting up the up the line to the office bearers. I, as I say, I mean, I I want to make this place as welcoming as possible. To that end, I need to know about any concerns that there are in that regard. Mm-hmm. Um, you you mentioned the the suggestion we might have um, something to celebrate Pride. It, it's deeply regrettable that the ongoing restrictions mean we can't. But um, I'm very very open to having something perhaps later in the summer, early autumn. Mm-hmm. We have a big space here. The restrictions are now getting to the point where we're allowed to have, albeit not as packed events as we would like, we can still have events. Mm-hmm. We had a very useful event to launch the, the Lord Hope Scholarship uh, that, uh, that I meant with SEMLA. Um, the Lay Hall was packed with SEMLA members. It was, it was a delight to see. Uh, and the direct result of that was um, young uh, members of, the, of, the SEM, of SEMLA are now coming forward to come to the bar. And Usman Tariq, who's done a great job in that regards, persuaded, I think, three or four very, very talented lawyers who were quivering about, you know, on, on, the, on the fence as to whether or not they wanted to come to the bar, to come to the bar. Mm-hmm. I'd like to do that um, with the Glass Network as well. And if we can have an event, um, let's look at something maybe in September, by which time, surely, hopefully, um, we'll get to a position where we can and actually do something and not have to have uh, such extreme social distancing that it doesn't make it any fun. That sounds like a lot of fun. And oh, it's been Tariq. I have such a professional crush on him. I just think he is so great at what he does um, as an advocate, plus is like extra professional work with what he's done with Simla. And I've said that to his face and I'm happy to say that publicly. Have you ever been to a Pride event or anything like that, Roddy, before? I haven't. So I'm happy for, it oh. to the, for the first one to be here at, um, here at faculty. Perfection. Well, you're in for a ride then. We'll have a, we'll have a great event. I think what's great about that mentality and that attitude is that Pride is not a one month out of the year. It is an ongoing commitment to that inclusion, to acknowledging lesbian, gay, bisexual and trans identities, as well as other gender and sexual uh, diverse identities. And I think it's re- I'm really excited to do something more uh, substantive 
than just talking over Zoom. That is something that welcomes and supports and encourages LGBT plus members either in the faculty or wanting to come to the faculty, which I'm delighted about. So thank you so much, Roddy, for coming in and telling us all about the faculty and, and how Gus and yourselves are working together. It's been absolutely a pleasure. For me as well. Thank you, Drew. Thank you. Following on from our conversation with Roddy, we're now going to be ha- listening to Alan Ingalls, who is a member of the Glass Network Committee, and is also a member of both the English Bar and of the Scottish Bar. And as an out gay man, he tells us about what his career has meant to him, about what he, how he has seen himself and his role in society change. And Alan is just one of the longest serving committee members of Glass Network. I'm so excited for people to understand how he works and what his and what his contribution is to Glass Network. So please listen to this interview with this incredible man. I hope you enjoy. Hi everyone, welcome to the Glasscast. My name is David Murphy, my pronouns are he, him, and I'm the secretary of the Glass Network. Today I'm here with Rue, and we're going to be interviewing Alan Ingalls, an advocate and fellow member of the Glass Committee. I am so excited to hear all your answers, Alan. I've been looking forward to this for so long. <laughs> How are you doing? I'm good, thanks. I mean, this is a classic advocate here. He's just giving us just the words he wants, nothing more, mm. nothing less. We're going to we're going to take it apart, take you apart in this podcast, but with love. I hope you know that. Right. <laughs> we shall see. So I guess, Alan, taking it to the start of your your legal career, would you be able to tell us a little bit more about what made you choose law? Um, I like arguing with people, which is why I was drawn to law. I don't come from a background where there were other lawyers in previous generations. So I had a um, previous career before I went to the English bar. I was a social worker because I believed that it would be impossible for somebody from my background without contacts to get into the English bar. Yeah, I didn't know anything about that. Because you are accredited specialist in family law. So obviously that kind of... Yeah, well, um, when I trained for the English Bar, I did a conversion course, a bit like the accelerated LLB. And what we were told at the beginning of that was that of people starting out with the intention of going to the English Bar, only 4% of them would end up with a place in a barrister's chambers. Mm. So I thought that the thing to do was to stress my um, unique selling point, which was my background in childcare work. And that's how I ended up in specialist chambers doing family law. Is that something you knew you wanted to do before going to law school, going down that specialist route? Yeah, I thought that that's what I would emphasise because I realised that it was going to be very competitive and also, uh, and that from a non-Oxbridge background, it would be important to stress something that was different from uh, the experience mm-hmm. of other people and particularly relevant to a specific area of law. But I always wanted to do um, law from when I was about seven I just thought that it wasn't something that was open uh, to me. Uh, And I got to the stage when I was a social worker where I thought that if I didn't change at that stage, it would be too late. So that's when I 
um, changed. What was it about being a member of the, the legal profession that, that drew you to it ever since you were seven years old? I know that's kind of a, a different experience to me. I, I didn't really know much about the legal profession at all at that, at that age. What? Um, I think it was TV programmes that probably made me want to, to do that. That, w- that would be how I knew of the existence of um, mm. uh, the legal profession. And in England, you choose one branch or the other unlike here where generally people are solicitors before they um, go to the bar in Mm. england you choose one or other and i always wanted the bar rather than being a solicitor i think it was because i thought it was glamorous dressing up like that and i do remember the first time that i put the um, gear on in a roving room i can't remember which court it was and I stood behind the door of the road and I said, I'm going to go out there and people are going to just laugh. Um, but in fact, I went out and they looked with awe. It was really, really strange. <laughs> um, but of course, in my area of law, we never wore the robes very often anyway. So, uh, But dressing up was an attraction. <laughs> <laughs> and I like self-employment. I mean, I certainly don't think that I could work in a company office I certainly wouldn't be able to now. I, I much prefer it right from the, the word go. I much preferred it to the idea of being in a solicitor's office. Hmm. I wanted to ask about, you know, so you talk about you weren't from an Oxbridge background and a lot of Oxbridge people and did advocacy. And your unique selling point was that you were a social worker. So was there a preconception before going into law or, or going to the bar that you thought a lawyer looks like this? Yeah, well, I mean, if, at that time, if you look through the handbook of available pupillages, which is like Devlin is up here, a large number of them quite clearly said that they wanted an Oxbridge 2 one mm-hmm. And that was it. They wouldn't consider applications from any other background. You're obviously um, a gay man, because we've talked about this before. Was being out, uh, being out as a gay man something you thought you couldn't do at the bar before you entered it or when you were in it? I thought there would be hostility, and there was. Um, it's not the sort of hostility that um, I've heard happened a f- few years before I went there. But certainly I did my first six months because you do pupillages in six months blocks in a very traditional family law set. Mm. And then I went to, for my second six, I went to a set which was relatively new but had a majority of women. And I know that somebody very senior in the previous set said, well, he, you'll fit in there with that bunch of lesbians. And none of them were lesbians. Right. Um, yeah, but I mean, I've heard, I used to go to meetings of the bar, lesbian and gay group, and they would occasionally have dinners. And two of them, they had two, two different high court judges describing their experiences of being out probably about 15, 20 years before I joined the bar. And the openly expressed hostility to them Mm. was extraordinary. When was that? To their faces. When was that? Um, Let me think. I suppose that that would have been about, I think both the people I'm talking about, probably they were called about 50 years ago. Mm -hmm. And one of them, when he was um, applying to be a part-time judge, was asked at the interview about aspects of his sexual practice. 
by staff of the Lord Chancellor's Department. As part of the questions as to whether or not he was able to go behind the bench. Mm. Yeah. What, what is it like being out at the bar in Scotland as opposed to England? Um, it feels much more isolated. The last chambers that I was in in London had about 25% of its members were LGBT um, out of 60. And that's something that I think is significant because I think that it remains the case that we feel more comfortable in settings where we see that other LGBT people have already been accepted. Visibility, I think, is crucial and there is an absence of visible out LGBT people at the Scots Bar. Mm. And I don't think that that will change unless steps are taken to increase the knowledge that the faculty intends not to be discriminatory in any way. The other thing that interests me about the area of law that I practice in is that I used to do a lot of LGBT family cases. Mm-hmm. And I have friends who continue that to be a big part of their practice. Um, LGBT people don't much use Scots courts. And I think that that is because there aren't visible LGBT people at it. One thing that is very apparent to me is that if you look through the English law about reported cases about LGBT family structures, LGBT people instruct people who are LGBT themselves, and that's not... uh, Well, it's not recognisably open to LGBT people wanting to litigate in Scotland about family law cases. So, Alan, just picking up on the point on you being involved in LGBT plus family cases... One question that that I kind of wanted to to ask, because it's something that I've thought about if I had entered the the legal profession at an earlier stage, I think um, Mm. it must have been incredibly challenging being a part of the the profession at a time when they weren't as supportive of LGBT plus rights um, as they are today. I was wondering, did, did you ever feel as though you had kind of a, a conflict between, on the one hand, your your professional life mm. and also your personal life, on the other hand? And if you did experience that, how did you reconcile that? Well, an example of that would be, and this um, is also relevant to the issue of the Cabrant rule. Mm. I was instructed by a squadron leader in the Royal Air Force in a custody dispute, as it was then called, where he wanted me to argue that if his son was brought up by his mother, he would become a what he called a homosexual. And he wanted to rely on an article in, guess what, the Daily Telegraph. And of course, at the bar, you're not supposed to turn down cases because you don't agree with what the person wants to argue. But when I pointed out to the solicitor that the judge would just laugh at me if I, of all people, attempted to put that argument, they agreed that they didn't want to instruct me any longer. So that kind of like exemplifies the conflict between the personal and the professional. I was thinking about quite recently, actually, is that I was cross-examining somebody. It was a woman in a, I think it was a financial dispute, but she ended up, she said, not taking that from a queer like you. Um, oh, my God. And uh, I said, and I'm proud of it. Um, and the judge said, that's exactly the way to deal with that. Mm. Um, 
Go you. you. Good for you. <laughs> yeah, it was quite funny, actually. Um, but, um, yeah, and there had been other times. I remember that uh, I uh, represented the wife of um, a still rather famous journalist who got his stories when for his newspaper when he was getting detoxed from his coke habit in mm. Priory. Uh, but he followed me through Kingston upon Thames shopping centre, shouting homophobic abuse at me. Mm. And the difficulty with something like that is, I mean, I knew that if I went back and told the judge what had happened, she would she would have sent him to prison. But the problem mm. about that sort of thing is, who is the story in the paper? It would be me rather than him, and that mm. is a, a real inhibition on uh, uh, doing something about those sorts of things. Mm -hmm. That sounds absolutely awful. I had my own bat of mm. unfortunate homophobic luck last year. And I remember being, you know, similar to you, being having this person behind me for or for whatever for half an hour, calling me all sorts of things. And then yeah. I ended up and it ended up in the paper. And it was so annoying because it was just a, an incident that happened. And I said, you know, um, lawyer Drew McCusker and partner, yeah. whatever his name is. I mean, what was definitely annoying was that they used a terrible photograph of me from my LinkedIn, which is not the one I really wanted them to use. But it is weird how you become a story. I think one of a lawyer's jobs, kind of like, as yeah. maybe you're alluding to, is that you are there to present the facts, present a narrative, and to persuade a sheriff. But if you then become a, like a subject of what you're discussing about, it changes not only your job, but also like it, it makes it so much harder for you in future to advocate yeah. and to persuade if you, people already know things about you. What you're wearing in itself, the white wig, the black gowns, is to have more anonymity. When you're less anonymous, it must be so much more difficult to do your job. Mm. Maybe that's what you experienced, maybe. Yeah, and uh, you know, I just, uh, even if I didn't do this job, I wouldn't want my, me to be um, a focus of stuff in the press anyway. So. But I think it makes it so much more difficult. That just, just there, you said something interesting, though. You said the word homosexual. And I remember conversations with you before. You do not like that word. You find it very scientific and clinical. I don't. Mm -hmm. and it's a medical term. Mm -hmm. It is a medical term. and That's its origin. It was created as a term by psychiatrists because they wanted to find some way of identifying and changing people who were gay. I think it's really interesting because I, I didn't actually know about the origin of the word homosexual and mm. just having that kind of insight into it being a medical term and one that was used by psychiatrists, I think it's, it's really interesting and it, it explains so much as to why, why some people may not be comfortable with that word being used. And th this is something that Drew and I were talking about, you know, a, a few weeks ago, but we were both just quite shocked that when we're looking at the, the history behind LGBT rights, one of the points that I feel often gets missed because there, there's so much of a narrative around decriminalization is that we don't actually delve into this discussion around being LGBT was classified as a mental illness. Yeah, and, until quite recently. Yes, I think, it, I don't yeah. know off the top of my head, I think it was at some point in the 1990s, I, I just remember seeing that and thinking yeah. that, that it's one of these narratives that I don't think gets spoken about enough. 
And, you know, you, you just mentioning that the fact that homosexual is a medical term and where that originates, I guess it kind of sparked that thought that I had. And it's, it's a discussion that we, we need to talk about more. Yeah, because I think that's been lost. Certainly in the 70s, which is when I came out, the idea that anybody would use that word was anathema. And the origin of the word, of the term gay as a substitute, Mm. is that that was a word that was adopted mm. by gay people in the um, 60s. So it's it's a self-selected word. Mm. Um, and that's why I think it's important to use that one. I mean, it grates when I mm. hear the H word, actually. I think it's mm. like describing gay people as coloured. I think it's on that mm. kind of level. When it comes to terminology, one thing that we just have to be alive to is the fact that each individual will have their own experiences and relationships mm. with particular words. I know, uh, Drew, in, an in another one of our podcasts, we spoke about being bullied in school, and there are certain words that can be more triggering to others depending on how they were used. Yeah, I was thinking about this the other day, actually. There was um, a name that I was called at school, which I had never, ever been able to um, Mm. Say myself, mm. even now. Yeah, and why would you? But I couldn't. E I couldn't even recount the story because it would re require me to um, use that word. Yeah. So it's amazing, amazing how being bullied lives with you for yeah. so long. It, mm. it becomes a part of you. The sad truth, as well, as older gay, older queer people, we're like able to see these younger queer people. And maybe a lot more empathy because we still remember all those experiences. I still yeah. recall being 21, 12, yeah. eight so easily. But I don't know, As I think it's very easy for us to mm. be complacent. One of the things that I think is going on with um, our trans sisters, and you know, I use the term sisters um, advisedly because none of it is directed against trans men, yeah. is that... You would never have heard that sort of thing a few years ago. People are emboldened about it, but they must have been retaining those sorts of views, but not expressing them because they know the hostility that that would create. And I think, you know, that that is what is happening is the thin end of the wedge, and it's coming our way as well. Because I've been at the English bar a very long time, yeah. I know a lot of people who have very, very checkered pasts who, mm. on these issues who um, go on the bench, become QCs, because mm. they go to interviews and they know what words not to use. Mm. Well, I kind of want to ask you about that, because you and I, along with David, we all walked in the first Edinburgh uh, Gay Pride with official representation from the legal profession. I remember you said that you remember walking in the Pride Marches down in London and being spat on. And so this was like a huge... Yeah, the first, time, the, first, mm. the first time I went on a Pride March was 1975. There must have been about a 1,000 people at most. And Pride goes through the main streets of London now. It, it certainly didn't do that then. And people were spitting. And the police were keeping themselves as far apart uh, from us as they they possibly could do. But of course, all of that's changed. And I don't think it's changed entirely in positive ways, because I think pride has to be for people who can feel pride. Okay. And that means 
it's a private space for LGBT plus people. Mm-hmm. Your view of the progression that, of LGBT plus rights is that pride is kind of for us to have with our community, and maybe. But how, how, what yeah. do you, what is what else do you think about the? I, I mean, I, I don't, I don't, I don't feel that uh, should exclude allies from anything anywhere else. But I do think pride should be about. You can only feel pride about LGBT hit plus if you are, and that's what that event is about. You mentioned there about the progression of LGBT plus rights when it came to trans sisters or our trans sisters. Tell me what what are the big. It's not progression; it's regression. Sorry, yeah, exactly. Yeah, the moment. progression of progression of mm. as we know. I mean the historical progression, of course. It is regression. Yeah trans visibility and trans inclusion. What has been the most shocking thing that you've seen as we've advanced down, down this timeline? You've seen us go from you know, the side streets to the main streets, but you know what else yeah. has shocked you or, or impressed you, moved you? What in particular? I mean, certainly, you know, there has been progression. Uh, one thing that kind of like struck me as something that I thought I would never see is pictures of the judges' dinner in London where it's led by a woman and then behind that is the second most senior judge with his husband. I just thought, you know, that is something you'd never expect to have seen. That's very cool. So, Alan, would you be able to tell us a little bit, a little bit of insight or your thoughts about the the bar and faculty of advocates and the bench and whether they're well equipped um, in your view to be LGBT plus inclusive? I think that there is a willingness. I'm not sure how far there would be a developed understanding, particularly of family law. I sit on the Scottish Law Commission advisory group about the review of cohabitation. And when I mentioned um, throuples, um, and I do have friends who are in mm. um, those relationships with children, there was complete consternation that, mm. um, that an arrangement like that actually existed. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm fairly sure I don't know the only two in Great Britain. Mm. Um, uh, <laughs> and this was reduced to by somebody else to an issue about polyamorous relationships, which I don't think is the same thing at all. So, I mean, I think that there's a willingness, but I think that anything other than the fairly conventional, some might say heteronormative gay relationships is not understood. I know. I, I, know think, Aaron... I mean, I don't think that judges are um, particularly unusual in that. I think that that is um, mm-hmm. generally so. Mm. And I mean, I also do think and that this was um, predictable when equal marriage uh, came in, that there's a hierarchy of what is acceptable to heterosexual society and uh, what is acceptable is monogamous relationships huh. involving two people. That's so insightful. Like, uh, that's, that's, such a, that's such an almost a blindingly obvious truth that I had never seen before. <laughs> mm. I always thought that that was the, the, uh, the danger um, mm. of um, equal marriage, although, you know, I um, supported it, but much more on the basis of equality than on the basis of thinking marriage was a superior social arrangement to anything else. So if that's the law, though, that's going to be changing, you know, and obviously the law changes when the lawmakers understand these issues more, 
you know, when it comes to when it comes to actually having these people who understand better, you know, my big thing is that we need to have a better LGBT plus visibility and representation and inclusion at the at the bar and behind the bench. Like, do we have that? Because I can't see any open sheriffs or judges in Scotland, at least who are LGBT plus, like, you know, you're closer to it than I am. You're closer yeah, to I, d- I, I don't know of any. Mm. Which says so much mm. about, you know, you're saying there how... And I, I mean, I, I think that um, the Judicial Appointments Board is alive to that issue. They did ask me to go and talk about that issue because I do think that the absence of LGBT judges in particular, and mm. uh, Scotland has a, a very bad recent history of treatment of gay adopters, Mm-hmm. Um, it puts people off. They don't. They don't feel that. I think don't think that LGBT people feel confident about litigating in an environment where they can't see that there are any mm-hmm. LGBT plus people making decisions. So here's my question: yeah. Then, what's your predictions for the next ten years? Are we going to have more LGBT plus judges, or is that something that's going to take us longer? Um, well, I mean, I have to say, I can't see who they would be. Mm-hmm. Because um, uh, they would presumably be, certainly so far as senators of the College of Justice are concerned, you'd see them at the bar already. Mm. Um, and I can't see who they could possibly be. I, I mean, I going back to what I said earlier, I do worry about the future, actually, because I do think that what is happening to trans women at the moment, mm. and, and, and you see it about issues of Stonewall's funding, and that LGB group who are trying to stop public funding mm. of Stonewall. So it's moving out from its exclusive focus on trans women. I mean, it's difficult to see what particular legislative changes are still necessary, but I think I think that pushes us into a defensive mm. position, and there is a lot that we need to be defending at the moment. And the horrible thing about the toxic debate about trans is that a lot of the women who are running it were previously part of our yeah. group. So hold on, just, I mean, there's lots to defend. Are you saying that you will not be leading the charge for throuples to have legal recognition? Alan, <laughs> Alan. <laughs> I wanted you to be up there. I think I think that's coming because my understanding is that the English Law Commission has been looking at birth certificates and whether you can have three parents on them. And I think that will come. Frankie McCarthy says that it's something to consider, the Scottish Law Commissioner. That's something that's, that's going to be happening down the pipeline. There are a lot of law commissioners um, who do family now. Mm. So, Alan, if I could just um, pick up on, on one of the, the points that you were discussing earlier and kind of throughout our discussion this evening, we, you've spoken about, I guess, the need for greater representation for LGBT plus members at the bar. While that's definitely something that we want to see, I'm conscious that there's probably a, some messages that, that we could discuss for the role that allies could play in breaking down a lot of the barriers and helping others within the the bar help to understand issues better is do you have any messages for any allies out there who are kind of looking to maybe do more or or what they could actually contribute to help those within the bar? I think that the bar needs to do a lot of that itself. For instance, one of the things that you regularly see in group emails is 
a request for speakers to go to schools and universities to talk about what life at the bar is like. And I think it would be helpful and important if a very substantial part of any of those talks was required to talk about the efforts that the bar could be making to get more inclusive mm-hmm. of LGBT plus people. Yeah. I mean, at the moment, although, you know, the, the witchcraft um, thing that you've probably seen on Twitter um, is a really great thing. And I don't want to detract from it at all. But the bar here has, a, at the moment, a greater profile about historic witchcraft yeah. than it has about LGBT people. Oh, that's um, so true. Mm, that's yeah. so unfortunately true. We are magic. So as my primary school teacher used to say all the time, they need to jolly well buck up. That's <laughs> what. <laughs> they agreed with that. Alan, I was just wondering, um, final question for, for this evening. Would you be able to tell me a little bit about some of your role models? Well, I don't know if I have kind of like role models. When I was training for the English Bar during pupillage, one of the things that I did was I was a judge's marshal. What you did then is when they went to sit outside London, you went um, with them and you stayed in the judge's lodgings with them. I don't think they still do this, but um, you went from the lodgings to court in a Daniel with a police motorcycle outriders, which is just heavenly. <laughs> but... Um, the judge that I marched to, she died very recently, actually, was a woman called Dame Margaret Booth. And she was um, never successfully appealed in the whole of her judicial career. And I learned from the six weeks that I went to Manchester and then Bristol with her. And from the, the six weeks with her, I learned so much about how to do the job, what it is that is observed from up there on the bench, um, what it is that a judge is looking for. And it was a quite extraordinary experience. And I, I learned so much uh, from her. And uh, her style of doing the job was terrific, actually. One thing that she did that particularly impressed me is... In family courts in England, the judge gives judgment almost straight away. It might be, the, might be the next day. But one of the things that Dame Margaret particularly liked doing was repeating any swearing that has gone on. <laughs> <laughs> so, all of her judgments would have. Uh, if anybody swore in court, it would be repeated in, in the judgment. And um, I <laughs> there was one case where um, she said, and Mr. Uh, whatever his name was, said that he was going to shove Mrs. Cole's hand back up her arse. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, she's this immaculately turned out with diamond earrings, perfectly set hair, <laughs> swearing like a uh, docker. Oh, perfect. <laughs> that, I mean, yeah. she sounds like a gay icon. Well, very, very strangely, in one of the obituaries, somebody, um, and I don't know why they did this, attributed some anti-trans views to her. And there is no way that she would ever have been, because she retired before, she certainly wasn't involved in any of the old cases about trans people being married. And she wasn't around when the the current Gender Recognition Act was implemented. So I can't see where that comes from. And I certainly didn't get any suggestion that she was uh, bigoted about anything. 
Well, I am so happy you uh, had such a good such a good role model because actually you've had people on this podcast who've said that they don't have role models, they believe in role models, but your role model has never been successfully been appealed. Sounds like a pretty good role model for all of the legal profession. But I think also that speaks yeah. to that speaks to you and what you are like. So I've had the pleasure of seeing you in action in I think two <laughs> or three court. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if you've been successfully appealed, not you, Alan, but any of your cases have been successfully appealed, but it is always such an amazing teaching lesson or just masterclass. Of- <laughs> take it, Alan, take the love. I have loved seeing, seeing you in court, which has been, and my friends and colleagues um, I've, I've commented on you as well in court. But what's been really fun is over the past five, six years, you've been in the Glass Network. You've been somebody who's been able to tell us we're not going to regress to these things. We're not going to um, have platform and give highlights to these areas. And you've been really instrumental in showing us actually what we should and shouldn't be doing. I think that probably comes from a breadth of knowledge that goes deeper than just law, but going to see how our society has progressed and, as you say, regressed and what it is that we need to defend. So for all the reasons that being, not only because you're a handsome man, though that is a very good reason. I very much... <laughs> I very well, much I certainly that. don't think that. Well, that's totally fine, because you, you shouldn't be your own role model, but you're one of my role models, so tough. Thank you so much. <laughs> You've been a pleasure as always. I can't wait until you invite me to be part of a truffle. So that was today's wonderful interview. Thank you so much for joining us. If you'd liked what you heard and you'd like to hear more, then please like and subscribe on whatever platform you're using. And please do share with all of your friends and colleagues. It would really help the Glasscast to get out there. If you'd like to find out more about The Glass Network, you can find us on our website, which is www.theglassnetworksco.squarespace.com. That's www.theglassnetworksco.squarespace.com. If you use social media, we are available on Twitter, LinkedIn and Facebook. Thanks again.